Aussies only. Thanks to GLG Green Life Group, leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. Well, one of the more fascinating journeys across tennis uh, is that which belongs to Peter Johnston, ATP Tour player up until his mid-20s and following that dream of a lot of young people to be a player at the the highest level and, and had some success along the way. And tennis has followed him or been a part of his life ever since. Uh, been one of the more important fixtures within Australian tennis, but also within the WTA Tour, serving long roles, not just with TA, but with, of course, the WTA, which has taken him all around the world and some really significant achievements on the tour. And we find him at Kuyong now, of course, the original home of the Australian Open. And Peter, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Darren. Pleasure to talk to you. I wanted to start off with, no, I, I can never entirely trust Wikipedia, but I wanted to at least clear this one up. I, I understand that you were either in part or in full the inspiration for the Australian Open logo. Is that correct? Yeah, look, it's 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 in part really because initially <laughs> there was um, uh, it was each year the logo would be different for the Australian Open, and I was doing the marketing at Tennis Australia, and um, I, I I guess there was a sketch uh, like a silhouette sketch, and it was the first year we were doing advertising on TV, which is now seems like that was even crazy. But given what happens now with the Open, with such an extensive ad campaign, but so the idea was that I would pose and they'd bring the silhouette to life so I was out serving in the car park serving against the uh the wall and filming it and then from there they sort of enhanced the silhouette if you like and um and it lasted I thought it would last one year but uh it lasted quite a long time up until a few years ago and uh I haven't seen any royalty check and I assume <laughs> one's not coming uh, have you had a chance to sit down with Michael Jordan and say I know what it feels like to be the silhouette that's uh, that, that's floated around for a long time. <laughs> Certainly took different paths. That's what <laughs> your background in terms of following that dream into playing that a lot of people had, and and obviously you were on the tour for seven or eight years there, and obviously competing as a junior. Uh, take us through where it started, where you picked up a racket and and fell in love with the game. Yeah, I started very early. I was uh, a junior, like played all the junior tournaments, um, was very keen to get overseas. So I, I was, I was a, like the, um, you know, there was no programs as such back then in the, in the juniors. And so I, I, everyone had to find their own way. So the path I took to try and play professionally was there was a place, Port Washington Tennis Academy in, in New York, which is actually now uh, John McEnroe's taken over. Um, and I went there, uh, there was a guy named Alex Aitchison who had previously been the uh, CEO of Kuyong, I think. And, that's, and then he moved. Harry Hopman was there, uh, had gone by the time I got there. But anyway, I contacted Alex Aitchison, uh, John McCurdy, a great mate of mine who has stayed always a, a great mate, um, had gone there as well. And we the deal was that we could work there. Uh, we contacted Alex and he, he gave us this deal where we could work there sweep the courts and everything and we could train so we lived in this cottage there and that was my first year overseas stayed there the whole time went to um uh played a lot of satellite tournaments it was called the pen circuit then and uh, would get back to port washington you know after a few weeks here and there and was grounding for money very much so and then met a coach for oklahoma state university on at these uh satellite tournaments uh he 
booked me into going to college, which I went for two years. Uh, I sort of, um, but I was always keen to get on the tour. And from there, so I did two years at Oklahoma State. Actually, we were a top 12 school back then because they would get the best foreigners. Oklahoma wasn't as attractive as playing at Malibu or um, uh, Miami. And, um, you know, the, so, but we always, we, I don't think we had a, an American on the team even, but um, then went off to Europe, based myself there, played a lot of tournaments. I mean, I finished up playing all the slams, um, but I was a, you know, I'd play a lot of club tennis. It would do it as my own business, play tournaments. When I lost early, I had my little car driving around. And uh, so I did that until I was 25, but it was sort of, trying to make a living out of tennis and treat yourself as a small business. And, uh, you know, I, look, I, I sort of think to myself, <clears throat> because since then it's been administration in various guises, but uh, like when I was playing, say, in in the, if I'd be in London, say, for Wimbledon Qualies, and I'd stay at Mrs. Hoare's guest house, which you can imagine what we all call that, the, um, <laughs> the Hoare house. And, uh, <laughs> but then when you, when you, when you're going to Wimbledon now over the last, which I've been going probably the last 35 years or so, but, you know, stay in better hotels. So I probably feel like I'm a, I was a bit of a journeyman tennis player, but sort of in administration, it, it led me into administration. In terms of that college scene, I know uh, in America, we're seeing quite a few players in recent years that have transitioned out of being college tennis players into tour professionals and, and the like. Um was that something that you feel gave you a little bit of that valuable experience and you're starting to see that now with players that are they found that that transition of perhaps easier mainly the Americans of course absolutely I think it's uh it was relevant then and relevant even more relevant now perhaps you know it's very difficult when you're not that good and you're going to play say satellites in Spain and you know it's cost you a lot of money you're playing clay quarters you're not as good on clay because you hadn't been there much like the like the Europeans. So you burn a lot of money very quickly. Whereas if you go to college, you're guaranteed a certain number of matches. The the camaraderie is great. The uh, you, you know the facilities are unbelievable, and and you're getting just you're getting overseas experience, which I think helps the transition into into tour life. Um, I mean, I, for sure, for me, as much as I kicked and screamed about going to college because I didn't actually want to go. Um, it became almost after one year of traveling on on my own, even if even if I had Port Washington as a base, that I wasn't going to be sustainable for me to to keep playing and burning money. I, you know, I did, it was my money. I didn't have it. And uh, but I was a bit better player having done the two years there. And I think when you look at the American system now, think of guys like John Isner, who was probably the you know he was a four time. All American at Georgia. Uh, you think of the, our guys, some of our guys who are playing great now, um, who you know went to college. And there's a lot of Aussies in college, men and women. And uh, yeah, it just it just helps you adapt, become a better player, experience a different life uh, to playing in Australia. But you know, it, it's when the finances are taken care of you. And I guess one thing for me, I should have like, kind of. You know, I've been so heavily involved in administration. I, I kind of had no intention of finishing college when I did it, and now I look back and go, "Gee, I wouldn't have minded having that degree under my belt." You know, like it just would have helped. But at that time, you're not thinking that way. But I think a lot of players now are staying through the four years. But think, think of Rinky Hitchikata. I mean, mm. uh, he's a, you know, and and also he's very rusted on. Uh, Tar Heel, having been at 
uh, University of North Carolina. And, uh, you know, I saw him a couple of weeks ago in the tournament I do in Juhai, and he, he's wearing his Tar Heel outfit and <laughs> um, he goes back to UNC. And, um, you know, I, it, it becomes, it, it just probably helped him. It's a good example, like transition out of straight juniors where you can sometimes get selected or not selected. And if you're not selected, you might be, feel like you're on the scrap heap because you haven't got enough funding. So colleges just in so many levels are a, a real important springboard, especially for Aussies. Looking at the the end of your journey in the mid eighties, I guess the motivation to to call it when you did, and and as I understand, sort of hearing a lot of your interviews in the past, that at that stage you weren't sure immediately what the future would hold. It might have been coaching or various other things. And how did that really significant sliding doors moment and the leap into admin occur? Yeah, I was pretty entrenched in Europe. I was basing um, around Holland and Belgium, and I. Um, they had talked to me about doing something with the national team. And I thought, gee, I just, uh, you know, and giving me a good time frame, like within the next year or so. And I, I wasn't sure what to do. I really wanted to get back to Australia. Um, there was the opportunity uh, actually in Perth. There was just this time when state coaches started to get appointed in each state. And I uh, knew the guys from Perth pretty well. I used to play there every year. And I, one, one thing I, I think I used what got me into administration too was I, I kind of knew all the people who were on the administrative side and, and the Western Australian guys were really good guys. When they go over there, I used to get on quite well. They offered me the state coach job there and I was quite tempted and, uh, you know, and gave me say 12 months more that I could play before taking it. And then I came back and I'm, I'm a Melbourne boy. And in Melbourne, uh, there was Doc Fraser, uh, John Fraser, Neil's brother, who was a, fantastic player himself. He was the president of Tennis Vic. Tony Duggan, who was the CEO. Again, great friends uh, of mine. Uh, John McCurdy, paths always come back to John, but he was already state coach here. He'd quit uh, tennis by that stage. And um, they said, look, we could conjure up a job for you. And I said, which was half admin, half coaching and uh, coaching the state squads. And so I thought, and again, I had six months, I could play six more months. So it all sounded really good. Did that. I remember going into the office first day, uh, just thinking, here's a desk and a phone. And I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, I'm meant to administer. Yeah. Didn't have a lot of idea, but what I was hungry for was to try and create programs. And my last year of playing I, I remember going into tennis australia and which was based in commercial road in uh, south yarra and uh, uh you know, it was very small staff it just wasn't like what it was and i said to them about look you've got to start running some satellite circuits here for australians and i i'd love to try and help you do it and so when i got into tennis victoria which was the bta at that stage part of my administration role was to try and also develop and that got me into selling sponsorships for the tournaments because otherwise they wouldn't happen because there was no money. And so then it's it sort of, and then I was doing my, my coaching with uh, the state squad. So it all morphed into a job, which then kept me sort of on a path that I had no sort of clear thought of where I was going, but uh, that was, a, that was an excellent start for me. In terms of how that springboarded from there, obviously working on tournaments around Australia, you've obviously had experience around the the Adelaide International, obviously working with the Australian Open and eventually general manager of the Australian Open Series and and things like that. How did it grow and grow and and grow from there? Obviously, as you picked up 
strengths and it just kept uh, kept building? Um, predominantly because I think I would get with in my tennis Victoria experience, there was a lot of selling to make programs work. So selling sponsorships I was able to land a few. There was a guy, um, his name was John Harding, I believe, who had Thermoskin. Uh, he, he was still around, you know, the uh, bandages for arms and legs and so forth. And he sponsored this whole Victorian satellite series. And it was very cool because at that stage, Todd Woodbridge and Richard Fromberg and Philippoussis, these guys were all playing them and we'd play at centres or clubs around Victoria and I'd run that whole thing and that led to more sponsorships. And then I started to do more sponsorships and then Tennis Australia was were looking for someone as a general manager of marketing. And uh, I had sat on a couple of committees of Tennis Australia as being Tennis Victoria guy and then um, I landed the job. It was a headhunter. Uh, as the general manager of marketing for Tennis Australia. So it was a big step up for me. And then I was uh, on the, I also did player liaison at the Australian Open. Uh, so that gave me a heavy bent on on tournament management and I run those, these satellites from beginning to end, et cetera. So I was, it sort of, I guess, kept progressing. And then, um, but I think I was always hungry to find sponsors. It's not, it's not a fun thing, but it was something that I think if you're motivated, you know, you can put the case with some passion and I was able to get different sponsors and that kind of brought me into a few, uh, you know, in, in increases in my responsibilities and jobs. Uh, Paul McNamee was the Australian Open Tournament Director, so I became his assistant tournament director and Adelaide Tournament was on its knees and I said, look, I can, I'd love to have a crack at doing that, which I did with Mark Woodford and we sold a sponsorship and, you know, so it was, it, was, it would tend to be, you know, one thing would lead to another. And but then I realized that really the, the events area is probably where I can, um, it's the pathway I should go on. And then that's led to I'm, I'm now my business is really full on with, with events. In terms of then looking at it from a, an ex-player's point of view, I, I imagine you spoke about sponsorship, obviously funding the game, therefore allowing more tournaments, more money in tournaments, more prize money, more opportunities for players to therefore make a living. More players can go professional long-term and, and that type of thing. How important was it for you to have that knowledge base of how tough it is on tour, but also how much of your role has been about making sure that there is something there for players? We hear about it in football and soccer where – when players come into clubs, they're encouraged to do courses and make sure that they have other skills. So in the event that their career ended through injury or form, they can land on their feet as well. Well, I'm being, I guess the blend of having played and then sort of doing some coaching with this, with the state program, like as, as I mentioned, guys like Mark Philippoussis, that one of the, one of our great friends was a guy, Andrew Florent who passed away, you know, had really good bonds with these guys because we were, wasn't much different to their age. In, when they were growing up, so it always had a strong player empathy and a, a respect, if you like. Like, I really respect anyone who's on the journey because I know it's pretty hard. And to give you an example, Darren, I, I think I was really happy when we did, I did the Juhai ATP 250 a couple of weeks ago. And it was so pleasing for me. I always look to see which Aussies are entered because um, I, you know, I've got that real, I really like to see. And, but look, any young player, I'm just really, as I say, I've got full respect, the men and the women. It's it's not an easy business. But in Juhai, there was four Aussies, actually, uh, who qualified. 
And it was so heartening. You know, the Polmans was up there. He lost to, he qualified and lost to uh, Cam Norrie. Uh, Alex Bolt up, he qualified, lost to, but he beat Diego Schwartzman and then lost to Karchinoff type match. Um, and I'm thinking, gee, it's, you know, go guys sort of thing. I just like to, um, and I always try and any tournament that I do, I'm really conscious of the player being the uh, well looked after. You know, I, I, and I, I think that's, you know, every aspect of the business is important, but you've got to have player satisfaction. And one other story I do remember is I went, when I first joined the WTA, Larry Scott was the CEO and I was having interviews with him in Florida and uh, I was talking um, about, look, I said, I've really got a good rapport with all the tournaments. I know all the tournaments around the world. And he goes, stuff that. It's the players we've got to look after. And it really stuck with me because the players are the mouthpiece and, you know, they're not interested in, people aren't really interested in hearing from, you know, what the tournament director or someone else thinks. If the player's saying good things for you, it's really, really uh, powerful. And so I guess it's helped me understand all aspects of the, all the business is important, but respecting all parts of the business. And uh, look, it's an ever-changing time with every aspect, the media, media rights, data becoming hugely important because bet, betting, investment from betting companies is massive. And you've got to look at, in doing tournaments, you've got to look at the economics, but you've also got to come back to the basics of what does make a, a good tournament tick. Tennis Australia obviously made some changes around about the 2008 period of which uh, you were one of those. And obviously you were then transitioning into a role, a very significant role with the WTA. Can you take us through that next sliding doors moment and, and obviously how significant it was to be a part of the broader tour uh, a tour that's obviously faced plenty of challenges and had a lot of success in the WTA. Yeah, well, that was a pivotal moment for my uh, myself and my family because uh, I'd finished after the 2008 Australian Open. Um, I just put the word out that, look, I'm, I'd love to be in the, to stay in the tennis business. And that's when Larry Scott, who I'd been a longtime friend and was a CEO of the WTA, he said, hey, come over and uh, let's have a chat. And... At that time, the WTA was flying very high. They had Sony Ericsson as a sponsor, massive deal there. Um, they had, and one of the major sources of revenue for the WTA is the year-end finals. They had a six-year deal. They had three years in Doha, which was paying an absolute fortune, followed by three years in Istanbul, which were also paying a fortune. So you had Sony Ericsson, the two rights holders for the future of the championships, and also they'd spilled the tournaments on the tour where you, any tournament that was on had to buy it, buy their sanction again from the WTA. So suddenly tournaments like Madrid were paying 8 million US to be, to stay on the calendar. And, you know, that was building the war chest for WTA. So they were looking for someone. And at that time, uh, a pioneer in women's tennis named Peachy Kelmeyer, who was, uh, you know, Billie Jean would speak so highly of Peachy was kind of the, administrator where Billie Jean was the mouthpiece and anyway Peachy was retiring and Larry had wanted me to come and take that job and so then I had it was a, it was actually a step up for me Darren big time because I suddenly had about 53 staff I moved to Florida with my family thinking and <laughs> you know a lot of the staff in the different departments had been there around 25 30 years still some are still there and know their staff and here's this guy coming in from outside and it was tournament relations, player relations, sports science, the supervisors. It was this quite a big department. And I remember going there 
sold up the house. Yeah, uh, got the kids out of school. We're moving over there, and I'm thinking the first day when I was going up the elevator to the office, going, "Gee, I hope this works." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and anyway, it was it was terrific. Like they were excellent to me. It was such a positive uh, vibe of everyone uh, being into into women's uh, into the game. Uh, I learned a lot about the tournament owners. Uh, learned a lot about so much, but um, I, I think it actually gave me a a complete insight to the sport across every aspect. Because when you do an operations role, you really are across every area. So that led me to being able to sort of position myself well after four years there to go and took the Beijing office role as managing director. And that was a massive time for the WTA because Lee Na had just uh, won the French and was just, you know, the talk of the, the Chinese uh, sporting world really. And the, WTA only had two tournaments back then, which were Beijing and a smaller one in Guangzhou, which still exists. And then in that time, there were cities that just had this massive appetite to get a women's tournament, whatever it took. And uh, so it was a great time for expansion, which then I learned a lot about the dollars behind these ownerships of events, which are very significant, and uh, and and tr- leasing of tournaments and purchasing of tournaments and it was a yeah i just feel like i've always sort of grabbed a job and then had to learn quite a bit about the job while i'm on the <laughs> job and then, and that's uh but it was a really uh the whole wta experience was really exciting and that gave me enough confidence to go out on my own and you know build on the the, the experience i'd had to direct tournaments sell tournaments lease tournaments you know perform those roles which i've done since Looking at, you mentioned learning the job on the, the run. There is obviously certain things that come up in roles that you just can't possibly prepare for. They just pop up out of nowhere and they, they are things that obviously need to be dealt with. And I'm, I'm thinking more broadly about some issues that obviously a lot of these didn't happen whilst you were there, but it's just more how you would approach them when they pop up. Obviously, you get situations like, say, Simona Hallop's suspension and the battling the... Uh, rules and regulations around water and how long it takes for those things to happen. So on one hand, it's working in partnership with the legislators and the rules, but also protecting players and their rights. But then you look at, say, a really more complex situation like Peng Shui, which became a diplomatic issue in her country, where you're also balancing the relationship with the country, but also the protection of the player. Like, How, from an administrative point of view, do you tackle sensitive issues like that? Well, they're both those those two are vastly different. Um, just to to go the first one on the uh, Simona one, I, look, I think ultimately you have to be able to do a lot behind the scenes in terms of trying to look at what your charter is. So, in the WTA's case, there's it's there's two charters, right? You want to show the health and integrity of the game, but you've also got a former Grand Slam champion and number one. I think she was one or two. Yeah, one. Know, balancing yeah. that whole that mm. that whole balance. So. You've got to do a lot of your work, and but you've got to be prepared to front up. I think the number one thing is being prepared to front up and be transparent. And and I don't think anyone likes it when you, anyone goes off the air for a while, even if you're doing the backroom walk, uh, mm. work, because then like someone will say something and then you're battling the whole uh, media cycle. So I, I guess on that one, I feel like, gee, looked like from from afar that it needed a lot more behind the scenes work with all parties. I'm not saying there's a solution there anyway, but the, the, the Peng Shui one is slightly different because I felt, and look, doing a lot of work in China and just come back from a, 
I've done a lot of weeks up there this year and um, it's been one of those, I, I felt like the WTA went very deep in, in, in a stance, which then made it difficult to claw back. Um, and, you know, China, it's, it's important to be saving saving face, you know, sort of, yeah. I, I sort of yeah. felt, felt like there was nowhere giving ground. And ultimately I did know too, because people that I, um, work with are friends of Peng Shui. Peng Shui has actually won the Kuyong Classic one year too. <laughs> right, right. And you, I've always known her pretty well too from the time in China. And, um, you know, I knew that she was she was safe and happy. And uh, I think there was also a few situations where there was the, the China Open people had shown that they were having a dinner with her. Well, the China Open was a uh, is a you know very valuable sanction part and a very important part of the WTA, and it was probably to me sufficient without knowing all aspects to sort of go yeah. hey look things are okay enough or at least have the have not as just have a position that you could move from and that's and, and what's been interesting is the you know time heals in a sense and here we are we've just had I think five or six WTA tournaments in China just finished we've done four men's events. Players have just embraced it. Like there was a joy amongst the fans coming out to watch from the Zhuhai experience that I I had. China Open was magnificent, um, you know, because players can, I think players, which I thought was going to be a massive challenge, but players have fallen in love again with playing in China. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's very strong. Each tournament is very strong on making sure players are treated extraordinarily well. And I think it's the tour, the tour is far better richer in both tours having the Chinese component. There's big prize money, there's massive eyeballs. You think of Zhang Zhizhen now, look, he's the guy, he's the greatest player in the history of China. He's I think he's up to 10 million Weibo followers now. You know, that's <laughs> that's for the sport, that that that's enormous, you know, and, and, and it's young fans in many cases. And uh so I'm just so happy to see China back on on all cylinders. Not because I've got any got skin in the game. It's just I think it's just Right. And so along the journey, it looked like that wasn't going to happen. I'm just glad that it's been enough, I guess, meetings with the right people to make sure that it is back and running. A few more before we let you go. Obviously, you've worked tournaments. You've worked through Europe. You've worked through the United States. You've directed tournaments in China, Russia, various other places, and obviously here in Australia. What sort of unique challenges do, do we face in Australia and what's unique about the game here? Obviously, we have a, a slam at a, at a brilliant time of the year and, and things like that. But obviously, every country is different in terms of where the sport ranks in the hierarchy and, and all of that. But what would be some uniquely Australian challenges? Challenge for Australia, for Tennis Australia, is to embrace things that aren't Tennis Australia's properties. I think there's the opportunity versus the because we're we're so fortunate with a Grand Slam that's just on all cylinders, you know, just you know it's it's a fixture in Australia and, and global sporting calendar. You know, it's it's a unique time. The focus is all on us. I'd, I'd like to see us with the lead up events embrace more the offshore as well as the you know about everything that goes on. Like it, I guess I feel like there's the Australian tournaments and then they're not. You know, you know, I, I trust the industry. If you like, I trust the I trust the global game. Like, there's a great tournament in Hong Kong coming up in first week of January. Australia's a Grand Slam of Asia Pacific, so there's an opportunity to put your arms around it and spread the um, Australian Open message, and you know, broaden the footprint, bring Hong Kong people down, 
etc. There's a lot of that opportunity, and and so I think Australia could use the Australian Open as a greater leverage point as part of the broader community. I I, I think that's you know because we have a luxury because you probably have to the Australian Open can fund the other events, but I'd like to see them become more self-sufficient in their own, embrace offshore and, and you know, really be integral to the broader geographic area, but also, um, you know, successful in its own right. So, yeah, I, but we are so fortunate to have an Australian, have a Grand Slam here. And the last couple, do you still hit occasionally? Is it, is it that, that you still sort of pump through the veins? I do hit a lot. Um, yes. I Especially when you go and play or go to these tournaments like China, Honestly, they want to play every day. They everyone who's up, <laughs> like there's lunch time, lunch between twelve and two. Like everyone stops right at twelve, and uh, but then they're all putting the gear on. Come on, you'll play, you know, and uh, and that helps me break into being working with them. Same when I do the tournament. I used to do a tournament in St. Petersburg in Russia for a lot of years. They love their tennis there, um, you know. So that always makes me like like to have a hit. I I play here a lot hit with a lot of friends. Played some doubles about uh, uh, not like last year it was with uh, Paul McNamee. We won some Oceana old man's thing, mm-hmm. and it was a, it was fun to play with him. Um, I had to take the whiteboard out there. He was showing me so many different plays that we had to make. Um, <laughs> I couldn't keep I couldn't keep up, but uh, but yeah, like still still love a hit. Like I just the sport's in my blood. I think that's the nice thing. And and, and one more thing I'd say, Darren, you, you the people you play like whether you played them in your 20s or so you may not see them for 20 or 30 years but for some reason some quirky reason you just pick up the ball from where you left off you just talk and Mm. there's something about it which is weird being an individual sport and not a team sport but you're kind of all bonded by each one had their own little pathway and and that's most of my friends are in tennis from all different places so I feel so fortunate with that. Yeah, the, the quiet understanding of the journey, I guess, if you will. What are you mm. what are you most proud of in your I mean, it's an extensive admin career, but is there something in particular that I guess when the head hits the pillow that you're most proud of? Don't think too much on it, except I guess survival is one. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a fairly it's not a big industry, tennis, relative to uh, you know, some other sports, but it is global. So I guess you've got to be able to embrace the global. Probably I felt I thought I was going to be in pretty big trouble when COVID hit, but actually it turned out opportunities because some places like Kazakhstan, um, St. Pete got upgraded to a 500, was able to lease a tournament to Kazakhstan, which led to them being able to buy one. These are places and thoughts that I had that I hadn't explored and and I was forced to do it really. And so in that sense, probably it gets down to survival, but I, I just feel lucky to be part of it. I, I, very happy every day. Here I am. I'm talking to you from Kuyong, just mm. a ridiculously beautiful club. <laughs> you know, I might go yeah. and have a cup of tea later on with John McCurdy down at Royals out there. Another beautiful <laughs> club. It's not a bad. It's not a bad life that it, that it provides. No, it's it's not. And 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 just finally, I guess the best. Some of the answers might be easy, but best player you've seen in the game. I sense maybe on the WTA it might be easier than the uh, the epic debate on the ATP. Uh, WTA, I've always felt like the greatest of all time was actually Steffi and uh, I had a I used to the first few years she came out here when she was quite young I was her hitting partner mainly because uh, I'm left I'm a lefty and her nemesis at that time or was uh, Martina Navratilova so I would and, and 
Steffi would get here like four weeks early and I'd hit with a daily um, up till the Australian Open and uh, I always felt like her record and her understatedness yeah. is extraordinary, but it's just, you know, she just did everything in the game, not to not to shy away from what Margaret Court did, Serena, but uh, yeah, I've got to, you know, I hold the, the candle for Steffi. Um, the guy's just extraordinary. Um, I'm giving the nod to Novak. I find him a pleasure to deal with. I think the 24 slams is, and and also winning every Masters 1,000, I think twice. And just, just every record you have to tick, he ticks it. And it's just, they're all amazing, but I just uh, be fan of the way Novak goes about it. Peter, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I uh, appreciate you jumping on and sharing the journey. We probably could have done two or three parts and, and, and discussed a million things, but um, thanks for, for sharing the journey with us and long may it continue. Your contribution to the game has been unbelievable and, and we appreciate all you've done. Oh, my pleasure, Darren. Thanks for talking. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, in it to win.